The following is a sermon from Faith Troy, a church located in Troy, Michigan. For more information and more audio and video content, go to www.faithtroy.org. In every party planning experience of my life, getting ready for a party has demonstrated something to me about the people who throw a party. Some of you might have experienced what I'm talking about. When you get ready for a party, you begin to learn something that maybe you don't always see in the people who get ready for a party. In, in our house growing up, we, we had, had one, one member of the family who we affectionately called the party Nazi. In our house, what, what this meant is that in, in most households, you get ready for a party and you do cleaning and decorating, all those things. But in our house... The, the, the requirement was not just vacuuming the house, but every bristle of the carpet had to be moving in the same direction so that the carpet was perfectly shaded and no footprints could be in the carpet until after the guests arrived. Or a normal household, you would clean and dust and do some of those things. In our house, we put a fresh coat of paint on before people came over for the party. All right, now, that, now that's not the only kind of party planner. There's also what's closely related, the party nerd. Right now, now the party Nazi focuses on, on the work, the task. The party nerd is the spreadsheet party planner. Right? This is the person who knows all the details of the party. They know the, the yeses, the noes, the maybes, the plus ones. They know how many dollars and cents are being spent at the party. They could even years after the party go back to a spreadsheet and tell you who came to the party, who gave what to the party, how much wine was spent at the party, and how, much, how valuable were the gifts that they received at that party. Or some of you may have experienced what I'd call the, the Pinterest party planner. Or this is the person who, when you show up at their kid's birthday party, you question every kid's birthday party you have ever thrown. Right? Because you walk into an inordinate amount of, of balloons, right? And you, and you can't help but ask, like, how long did they spend blowing up balloons and tying those balloons? And, and, and then you look at the family, and the family is all in matching outfits, and then, and then even you get the food, and even the food is named to match the theme of the party. And so you question, like, like why have I ever even tried to show my kids that I care about them? <laughs> see, see, there's something about a party that demonstrates something about the people who throw the party. It demonstrates something about what they care about, what matters, what doesn't matter, who matters. There's something about a party that demonstrates to us something about the people who throw to the party. And sometimes a party can change the way that we see people. Sometimes it's in the midst of a relationship that we begin to change the way that we think about somebody. It can change the way we think about somebody who's not like us, somebody that we work with, somebody who's a neighbor, a friend, a family member. Sometimes it's in the context of those relationships that we learn new things, that God shows us new things about a person. Because suddenly maybe that person that you were angry with, you learn that there's some hurt behind the anger. Or suddenly that coworker who you don't really spend much time with, suddenly you see them with their kids and with their family and you see another side to them. Or suddenly that neighbor, you realize that you have some things in common, that you enjoy them. And suddenly that party changes the way you see somebody. Today we're beginning this new series, It Takes a Party. And the reason we're beginning this series is to, to think about and to look at the parties that Jesus goes to. All throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus going to parties, Jesus talking about parties, Jesus illustrating God's love with parties. And it's in the midst of those parties that it demonstrates something about God's love. It demonstrates something about what matters to God, what doesn't matter to God, and who matters to God. 
And it's in the midst of those parties and learning about those parties and experiencing those parties that God often changes the way that we see other people. It changes the way we think about people who maybe have different opinions to us. It changes the way we think about who's invited to the party and who God cares about at the party. If you could open your Bibles to the book of John chapter 2. If you're using the Bibles in front of you, it's on page 1,648. In this text, as we dive into it, this could be possibly the greatest party trick of all time. This is the first miracle of Jesus. And John records for us this event. And so Jesus is going to do a miracle. Some of you may have heard of this, where Jesus turns, actually turns water into wine. Now, this is, what's interesting about this is there have been many commentators throughout history that have actually struggled with this. And so now the people who are at the party don't struggle with it, but the commentators throughout history have to deal with this tension. Like, what's the first miracle of Jesus? Why is Jesus dealing with something related to alcohol and excess and hedonism? Like, what's actually going on in this event? But when we dive into this text and when we begin to look at the first century world of Jesus, what we'll find is it demonstrates something significant about what Jesus cares about when he's at a party. And so I'm going to read beginning in verse One, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who'd drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. This whole miracle begins with a simple statement that Mary makes when she comes to Jesus. And she, and she approaches Jesus and just says, they have no more wine. No, I can't help but look at that and, and immediately start thinking, like, okay, right? Like, I mean, why does that actually matter? People, people are, have parties and they run out of drinks all the time. This is just what, what happens. Like, why does this actually matter to Mary? Why does Jesus end up doing something? Now, we know it matters because Jesus does do something. Right? We, we can tell that it matters because of how Jesus reacts and how people respond. But, but, but like, what is actually happening? Why doesn't the party just end? Why don't people just go home? See, in the first century world, when we, when we dive into this, what we'll find is that Jesus does something because it demonstrates something about what he's come to do. And so when Mary comes to Jesus and says they have no more wine, it's not just about the wine. See, in the first century world and throughout the scriptures, we find wine to be a symbol of joy. In Psalm 140, it actually says that God gave wine to gladden the hearts of men. Throughout the first century world, wine would have been this symbol for joy. And so when you throw a party, when you have a celebration, you have wine at the party because there's joy at the party. And so when Mary shows up to Jesus, what she's not doing is tapping Jesus on the shoulder and saying, Hey, Jesus, like people aren't talking much and we need something to loosen people up a little bit. 
Right? She's not like looking out at the dance floor and saying, all right, we got nobody flossing yet, and so we need, we need somebody to get more wine for us to loosen them up. No, Mary is going to Jesus and saying, Jesus, they've run out of joy. When she says they have no more wine, she is saying the equivalent of they have no more joy. And so Jesus will do something about that. Jesus will make sure that the joy doesn't stop at this party. Have you ever experienced in life like that, that moment when you were maybe looking for something to make you happy, something to become the source of your own joy or the source of your meaning, only to later found, find that it, it ran out? Like you thought it would help, you thought it would fulfill you, only to a couple months later to realize that you're, you're looking at it and it's, it's empty. Like maybe you've done this with work. Like you thought the new job, the new position, the new title, the new responsibilities, that this would satisfy you. That this would make you worth more. That this would mean something more. That this would give you the joy that you were looking for. And then months later you look back and you thought, all right, it was good for a little bit, but it ran out. It stopped doing what I thought it would do. Or you looked for this relationship to, to give you this, the, that, that friend or that boyfriend or girlfriend, that spouse to be the source of your happiness. Or sometimes people even talk about people that way, like this person just makes me happy. And then what you found out over time is, is that relationship took work. And there was frustrations and difficult conversations and forgiveness, all that was required. And suddenly that person who always made you happy isn't making you happy anymore and it seems like it's all run out. Or maybe you've even looked to things that God clearly says just avoid. That things that you know that God doesn't want for you, but you needed something to help you deal with the loneliness, the anxiety. And so you turn to something and only to over time realize that maybe it helped for a little bit. Maybe it was good for a season, but it ran out. See, when we look for joy in the temporary, it always runs out. And so when the wine runs out at the party, the joy doesn't run out because Jesus is at the party. When the wine runs out at the party, the, the, the source of the celebration, the source of the meaning, that it, do, it doesn't stop because Jesus is at the party. When Jesus shows up at the party, joy doesn't run out. And so Jesus shows up at this party to demonstrate that he cares about our joy, to demonstrate that he cares about what we care about, to demonstrate that he cares about our life, to demonstrate that he cares about the people who party. Sometimes it takes a party to demonstrate that God cares about the people who party. And so Jesus makes more wine because he cares. Jesus makes more wine because he doesn't want joy to ever run out. Now that's not the only thing that's happening here in the first century world. Not, not only is wine a symbol of joy, but there is also, they're also living in a shame-honor culture, which means in this situation, there is actually a great responsibility for the groom and the party he throws for the people. See, if you're a party nerd, you never, you never are unprepared for the amount of wine you need at a party. Right? You have a perfect algorithm to calculate how much you're going to need. But, but this groom was not prepared for the kind of party he's supposed to throw. In the first century world, it would likely be at the newlywed's house. 
The party would possibly last as long as a week. And so in that culture, if you are not prepared for the celebration that you are responsible for throwing, it brings great shame on you, your parents, your new family. And so there's embarrassment, shame, and failure that are all wrapped up into this moment when he runs out of wine because he wasn't prepared like he was supposed to be. One commentator even said about this that that it would have been something of a slur on the host for they had not fully discharged the duties of hospitality. In fact, in the first century world, there was also legal liability for the the family of the groom if if they didn't throw the party properly, if they didn't have enough wine for the party. And so there's legal obligation, there's shame, there's embarrassment. And so when Jesus shows up at the party, he demonstrates not only does joy not run out at this party, but that shame doesn't win. Jesus demonstrates that shame won't get the last word. A a, a great author by the name of Brene Brown helps provide some good definitions for for guilt and shame. And she makes a distinction this way, that guilt is that I've done something wrong. Right, Guilt looks at our choices, our behaviors, and knows, all right, I've done the wrong thing. I've made the wrong choice. I haven't lived up to the standard. Shame, on the other hand, says I am something wrong. And so embarrassment and hiding and, and all of that, it, that, that's what shame is. So shame is when, when you have done something and you feel like it, it's defined you. Shame is what you experience when you, when you feel like, all right, it, it's destroyed the reputation of my family. Shame is that feeling that you have, like when you've been found out about something and you think it's going to ruin you. Or shame is that feeling that you have that, that maybe some of you even experience. Like you have that thing that you hope nobody ever finds out about you. Shame is what, what leads you to keep that hidden. Because if people found out, that would define you. Now, this is what people have always done. Some of you know this as, as a parent, right? You've seen your kids. Sometimes your kids are guilty, and so they come to you with, with tears and say, I'm sorry. Other times your kids, when they've done something wrong, they run away and hide. That's shame. Shame runs away and hides. It's what Adam and Eve do in Genesis, right? Adam and Eve run away from God. They hide. They cover over their nakedness with the leaves. Why? Because they're shame. Shame can't face the situation. Because the situation defines them. And so what happens at this party for for the groom? If the groom runs out of wine, what does he want to do? I have a feeling that the groom in this situation doesn't want to come out and start partying with the people. Like I don't think he wants to come and start mingling with the people who have nothing left to drink. I don't think he wants to face them. And I have a feeling that he probably doesn't want to face his family either. His family who's now legally on the hook for his own failures. Does he even want to face his his new spouse? Embarrassed that the beginning of their relationship starts with what's brought shame on his own family. I mean, would would you find the groom at this party hiding somewhere? Because he doesn't want to face the situation. But at this party, Jesus shows up. And when Jesus shows up at the party, shame doesn't win. That thing that he's ashamed of doesn't define him. 
and that thing that defines you? When Jesus shows up, it doesn't define you. That sin that you're ashamed of, that experience that you're scarred by, that addiction you keep returning to, that relationship you regret, that failure that's wrecked you, it doesn't win. Jesus wins. When the grave lost its hold on Jesus, shame lost its hold on you. Because when Jesus died, so did your shame. And when Jesus rose from the dead, if death can't stop Jesus, then your shame's not going to stop him either. Because there is nothing that stands between you and your God. And so when Jesus shows up at this party, shame doesn't win. Paul reiterates this in the book of Romans when he says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In other words, if God is for us, then shame can't defeat us. If God is for us, then shame, which stands between us and God, can't stop us. If God is for us, then whatever stands between us and our joy and us and our meaning can't stop us because Jesus always wins. And so when we look at these parties of Jesus, what we begin to see is that when Jesus shows up at the party, something changes. And with this party in particular, in the, in, throughout history, as, as commentators have wrestled with the tension of this, and in many of the parties that we will begin to see, we'll also see this other dynamic begin to play out. That when Jesus shows up at the party, he also gets this bad rep for it. Where it begins to, people begin to like question him. Like, why, why, Jesus, are you hanging out with those kind of people? Why are you hanging out with partiers? Why? And Jesus gets accused of being a drunk. He gets hang, accused of hanging out with the so-called sinners. But for whatever reason, Jesus keeps doing it. Like, he keeps hanging out with those people. And, and here's the thing. When Jesus is hanging out with the so-called sinners, he's not concerned with his reputation, is he? He's concerned with what the sinners need, unconditional love and forgiveness. When he's called a friend of sinners, he's not concerned with what people will think of him. He's concerned that there's a group of people who need a friend. See, when Jesus shows up at a party, dignity takes a back seat. Because for Jesus, it's more important what the people at the party need than his own reputation. Because for Jesus... Jesus cares more about the needs of other people than his own dignity. And so as we dig into the, the parties of Jesus, the parties that he tells story about, what we will see is that it might look bad for Jesus, but it's not bad for the people at the party. Because when Jesus shows up at the party, it changes the people at the party. And in your own relationships, as people who bring Jesus into every relationship, sometimes it's at the party that Jesus demonstrates that he cares about people. In your backyard, on the boat, in the neighborhood, in your community, sometimes it's at the party that Jesus changes the way you think about the people at the party. And sometimes God changes the, you at that party. Because if we believe what the Bible says, when the scriptures tell us the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. When the scriptures tell us that Christ is alive in us, that means when you show up at the party that Jesus shows up at the party. 
That means when you show up the house and there are kids running around everywhere and you're trying not to step on anything or break anything, when you show up at that party, Jesus shows up at that party. When, when you're getting the burgers on the grill and having a drink with your neighbor and talking about life, in that moment, Jesus has shown up. And sometimes, when Jesus chooses to demonstrate that he cares about people at the party, he chooses to demonstrate that he cares about people at the party through you in the relationships that you form at the party. Here's what, here's what I want to challenge us to think about. See, if we circle back to the beginning of this whole event, it all began with Mary coming to Jesus. And so what if, what if Mary wasn't at the party? See, what would have happened if Mary never came to Jesus? What would have happened if Mary never brought this to, to Jesus' attention? Because not only does this text demonstrate to us that Jesus cares about the people at the party, but it also shows us that Jesus cares about who Mary cares about. And so Mary brings it to Jesus' attention, and Jesus at first says no, but eventually he does something for who Mary asked Jesus to do something for. And so when you look at your own life, Who are the people in your life that you could do for them what Mary did for someone at the party? What Mary does is pretty simple. She simply says, here's this person I care about. Let me bring them to Jesus. Let me tell Jesus about them and let Jesus do what Jesus does best. Who's that person? Who's that person that if Jesus showed up at a party with them, it could change everything? Who's that person that you know, that you look at them, and they've been searching for joy in all the wrong places? They've been looking for something to give them meaning. They've been looking for something to help, for something to make them happy. And what if Jesus met them at a party and their source of joy was changed? Who's that person that you know that they have something that's been defining them? Some moment, some sin, some experience. That if they met Jesus at a party, and if Jesus, if Jesus did something about their shame, it would change everything. Who's that person that you know who just thinks that Jesus would never be for somebody like me? That person who's like, I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm not really into the whole religious thing. I'm not really into the whole church thing. And so like, if God's going to hang out, he's probably going to hang out with church people. Meanwhile, like, when we look at the Bible, that's not what happens. Who's that person who, if Jesus showed up at a party with them, they would not know what to do with it? What if we simply did what Mary did and took that person to Jesus and asked Jesus to do something? Because this, that's exactly what happens. Mary brings somebody to Jesus, and Jesus does something. Now, what's interesting is Jesus doesn't do it right away, right? He says no. He says it's not time. And Mary's response is so interesting because she doesn't argue with Jesus. She doesn't have a debate with Jesus. She doesn't even, like, I would at least um, say, okay, Jesus, well, we need to come up with a plan and start figuring out what we're going to do about the whole situation. Mary doesn't do any of that. She simply turns to the other people at the party and says, do whatever he tells you. You don't say do whatever he tells you if you don't believe that he knows what's best. You don't say do whatever he tells you if you don't have faith that he will do what he does. 
And so Mary responds with faith, saying, do whatever he tells you, because Mary believes, although it's not on her schedule, Jesus has a plan. Although she knows that she cares about somebody at the party, she also knows that Jesus cares even more. She knows that even though she might have a plan, that Jesus might have a different one. And so she does what only she can do. And so she brings him to Jesus. And then trusts that Jesus will do what only Jesus can do. See, when it comes to the people in your life, what are the things that only you can do? Because only you can begin a conversation. Only you can extend an invitation. Only you can advocate for them before your God. But then as we do those things, we trust. We trust that Jesus will do what only he can do. And so you, maybe you can bring about a conversation, but only Jesus can bring about conversion. You can extend an invitation, but only Jesus can bring them into the family. And you might be able to change their mind about what they think about Christians, but only Jesus can change their hearts. And so you, as you go to the party, do what you can do. Have the conversations, fight for them, pray for them, listen to them, invite them, be there for them, and trust Jesus to do what only he can do. Because when Jesus shows up at the party, he will change the people at the party. And sometimes at the party, Jesus will demonstrate to the people at the party that he cares about people who party. And sometimes Jesus will choose to use you to demonstrate through you that he cares about people who party. Let's pray and we will prepare ourselves for the Lord's Supper. Jesus, we thank you for your incredible love and your forgiveness for your promise to love us no matter what. We thank you that even though we sin, even though we fall short, that you are gracious to us, that you have mercy on us. Jesus, as people who fail to love you with all our heart and our soul and our mind, as, we, as people who fail to love like you have loved us, we just ask that you forgive us. As we think about the love and the care that you demonstrate to us through the parties, and as you call us to love and demonstrate that care to other people, we ask that you remind us over and over again that your love never fails. So we pray that you hear us in these moments as we personally and quietly confess to you our sin. The promise of Jesus to you is that the joy he gives you will never run out. That the shame that you think defines you won't define you. And that no matter what you have done, he will always love you. Jesus says to you that your sins are forgiven in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.